Are you ready for God's word today? Okay, we are in week four of our long, slow journey through the Sermon on the Mount, talking about messy, how being a Jesus community is messy. If we truly follow the way of Jesus, it is messy. (laughs) How many times can I say messy in the first 30 seconds? It's messy, but worth it. Following the way of Jesus is messy, but worth it. So we're continuing on. As we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we see how Jesus was teaching kingdom theology to his followers. He was introducing them to the way of God's upside-down kingdom. So we're going to continue on this week, but because God's word is good and reading more of it is always better, we're going to get a running start. So we're going to read the text that we read last week to start out with. So hear the word of the Lord with me. You are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Don't misunderstand why I have come I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach the others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The word of our Lord. So just to review what we talked about last week, we recognized the power of the fact that Jesus spoke these kingdom values over everyone. Remember, the crowd that had gathered were not just the prestigious people, the powerful people, the strategic people to gather in a space to get what you want done done. No, he gathered the common people like us. I hope that's not an insult, but I am a common person. Amen? (laughs) And Jesus spoke these kingdom values over everyone. To this group of ordinary people, Jesus says, you are salt and light of the world. And we're reminded that Jesus called ordinary people to live ordinary lives transformed and empowered by an extraordinary God. And we all just sighed a collective sigh of relief that we do not have to be these spectacular people, although I think all of you are pretty spectacular. 
God simply calls us to the faithful, diligent work of following the way of Jesus day in and day out. And that's all he asks. We recognize that salt and light are the ordinary outcomes of ordinary lives lived in rich communion with God. We also recognize that there was a conundrum in the Sermon on the Mount. And we were left with this question, do we do good deeds and the work of the kingdom in public or in private? And if you remember, we pulled a simple framework from Scripture and we asked ourselves two questions. Number one, what is my intent? Am I intending to bring glory to myself or glory to God? And number two, does this act benefit others? If what we're doing is for God's glory and for the good of others, we should absolutely tell people. We should absolutely do it publicly, just like the Samaritan's Feet event. We're going to blast that all over everywhere, right? Because it is for God's glory and for the good of those who have needs. So we use that simple framework to guide us in life. So essentially, Jesus is continuing to call us to recognize the shape of our heart, the posture of our heart. Are we seeking our good or are we seeking the good of the kingdom? Now, we're going to continue on this week with new scripture, but I am going to introduce you today to one of my favorite illustrations of all time, and it is one that I will use now until I die. And so this umbrella will live on this stage. So if somebody notices and says, why do, why do you have an umbrella on stage? Just say it's the greatest sermon illustration of all times. Okay? Go ahead. And it's a shameless plug for Nazarene Theological Seminary. I paid a lot of money to get this umbrella. Let me introduce you to the Grace Umbrella. Because today's word is hard. It's a word that is going to turn my toes black and blue. And maybe yours too. And so I want to talk about grace before we dive in. Because the reality is what we're going to talk about today, we're all going to fail at. But the beauty of God's grace is that it is like this beautiful, fantastic umbrella. What is the goal of an umbrella? Well, the goal of an umbrella, while many of them fail at their task, is to get you from point A to point B without being impacted by the elements around you, right? What is the purpose of an umbrella if you just stand still outside in the pouring rain? It's meant to get you from place to place dry, right? God's grace is so similar because the goal is that when we come to know Christ, we don't stop there, right? But we continue moving, following the way of Jesus, being transformed day in and day out. And you know, sometimes we fall and we skin our knees. And sometimes we get off the path a little bit, but God in his grace continues the journey with us. And the trusty umbrella of grace protects us from the elements around us as we journey. 
And so I want you to know that as we all aim to follow the way of Jesus, we will miss it. But God's grace covers us as we work it out. It would be an abuse of God's grace to just hang out in life like this. <laughs> Thanks, God. <laughs> I'm just going to chill here under my umbrella. No. His umbrella was meant so that we might move through life covered by his grace, transformed by his spirit. So, as we go to the Sermon on the Mount for today, may we all remember that we are on a journey of grace together. And together, even when we mess up, we pursue the way of Jesus. Amen? I hope you never look at an umbrella the same way again. Oh, I think this one's fancy. Oh, man, that is some serious umbrella magic. Okay. All right. So now we're going to go on to the word for today. And we're going to read Matthew 5, 21 through 26. And then we're going to jump and read 38 through 48. But don't worry, we will come back to the rest. So if you will, stand in honor of reading God's word today, you can follow along on the screen. Church, let's hear the word of our Lord together. You have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple, and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. When you're on your way to court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge, who will hand you over to an officer, and you will be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you have paid the last penny. We're going to jump ahead a bit, and we'll come back to the rest. We're going to go to verse 38. You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the in injury. An eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask, and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you in that way. You will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, 
What reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different than anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. The word of our Lord. You can be seated. I told you it was a strong word. I have warned you. So we're going to zoom in on verses 21 through 26 first. And this is where we're going to start. This is in your notes. It is a healthy reminder for all of us. Anger is not a fruit of the Spirit. In case we all needed to be reminded of that, anger is not a fruit of the Spirit. Do we have a slide for that? There we go. So, uh, you know, there, there is this temptation, and man, if you've looked at the church lately, people might think anger is a fruit of the Spirit. We just call it righteous anger, and we think it's okay. But let me show you this funny doodle uh, from our book that we're studying along, What If Jesus Was Serious, right? There they are, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, outrage, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Fits, right? It's healthy to be reminded. Paul was so clear, and I, I reference this a lot because I just find how Paul talked about the fruit of the Spirit so helpful. In Galatians 5 verses 19 through 23, Paul said this, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger. And then later, he says, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in your lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. I, you check. I didn't see anger on the list for spirit side. Did you? Me either. But unfortunately, we, we've been in this season where righteous anger has been glorified in the church. We tend to justify this righteous anger because of stories like Jesus flipping tables in the temple. But church, let me ask you this, and, and let's together humbly think about this. Myself too. What human can wield anger in a way that doesn't cause serious damage. What human can wield anger in a way that is effective? We almost always, perhaps always, cause damage in the process. And so we have to get to this point where we recognize, is, is anger always wrong? No, anger is a real emotion. Read the Psalms. Even Scripture testifies to the fact that anger is something, as humans, we will experience. However, here's the problem. 
Anger is best deployed with perfect vision. When you can just see the whole situation in front of you perfectly clearly. I don't know about you, but I rarely, if ever, see all things. Not to mention all things clearly. Therefore, I know I really cannot be trusted with my anger. And so the, the cool thing is we can totally trust Jesus with anger because he is the one who is perfect and righteous and can see all things. Jenny, don't trust me with anger. King Jesus, yes. So the reality is anger is so destructive and, and so dangerous at the hands of humanity that Jesus just really advises us to work diligently to extract it from our lives. I think his message here to us is just that anger really serves nobody any purpose. And so the call to us is to entrust it to the one who can handle it. I think in the past five years, you know, let all that spin through your mind, what we've been through as the people of the world in the last five years. There's been a lot of justified, you guys know what air quotes mean, yeah, justified, righteous anger in the church. A lot of anger coming out of the people of God. And man, church, when, when I look at scripture, that just isn't in alignment with the way of Jesus. We're to take our anger to the throne, the one who is capable and able, and allow the spirit to eliminate it from our lives. Instead, producing that which really is the fruit of the spirit. Now, there's a really important practical implication here that Jesus touches on. And that practical implication is this, and this is in your notes. The way we speak about people matters. Oh, this is, this is good. I'm pretty sure I failed miserably about this when I was in school. So you guys learn it faster than I did. Deal? The way we speak about people matters. Let's look at verse 22 again. Jesus said this, but I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, how many of you already did that today? If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fire's of hell. Let's talk about the word idiot that Jesus used there. In the Greek, it's the word raka, and I'm terrible at accents, but if you're good at them, it's meant to make the same sound as one clearing one's throat. Raka. So, let me read a quote from What If Jesus Was Serious. 
The insulting word Jesus used was raka, a dismissive term of contempt in his culture that is derived from the sound of clearing spit from one's throat. How kind. The kind of contempt, this kind of contempt, is different than mere anger. Contempt seeks to diminish the inherent value of the other person. It views the other person as subhuman, not even worthy of my anger. It excludes the purpose from being worth of care, thought, or dignity. So that's at the core of what Jesus is talking about when he says this. I'll never forget, church, one time I was, I have to say this carefully, I was sitting at my parents' house, and there was a certain news channel on, I will leave its name anonymous so as not to incriminate anybody. But it was a news channel. And I remember I was like trying so hard to ignore it because it just, it's just designed to make you mad. And one of the newscasters said, you'll know who it was now, but you can draw your own conclusions, said, that idiot Joe Biden Church, I broke a little bit because that kind of talk is before us and it's okay and people laugh at it because they think it's funny. And Jesus right here is saying, not in my kingdom. I don't care which way that was going, not appropriate not to be celebrated. For sure, not something that we find humor in and take pleasure in. Because the person on the other end of that is a human being created in the image of God. So if we're honest, social media, news media, The memes out there, current trends and humor and sarcasm, they totally foster and normalize this concept of degrading speech. And in the kingdom of God, things are different. We're not quite there yet, just a second. We must be different. Even though the world and culture is normalizing this type of speech to get a good laugh, in the kingdom of God, we are different. Because we recognize that every human being has value in and of themselves, and so that speech doesn't even come out of our mouths. Grace umbrella. Jesus is pretty clear. How we speak about people matters. With our words, we either add value or we devalue them, period. As Jesus people... We believe all humankind has value. Therefore, our speech should reflect this. I think about just how quickly, I mean, all of us probably in our experience can think of how words have cut us down and changed the trajectory of our day. And at the very same time, how words have turned our day around. 
We like to think that our words don't matter, but the reality is what we say shapes other people and what we say shapes ourselves. What comes out of my mouth is doing something to my heart. And so the way we speak about people matter. I love the example of Justice Antonin Scalia, Supreme Court Justice from 1986 to 2016, was celebrated by both sides of the political spectrum. Even those who opposed him greatly held him in high regard, and I think this might be why. He was credited for saying this, I attack ideas, I don't attack people. And some very good people have some very bad ideas. And if you can't separate the two, you got to get another day job. And I love that because did you notice that Justice Scalia left room for people to still be good even when their idea is bad? Guys, I have bad ideas sometimes, and I want y'all to still see good. I love you, Miss Kay. Thank you. But this ability to not decide good or bad, it's not up to us. We don't have to bear that weight of deciding if somebody falls in the good or bad category. Oh, if we could learn from Justice Scalia and Jesus. So if you're sitting there thinking, oh my word, this is too radical, you're right, it is. The way of Jesus is radical. And when we said yes to him, we said yes to radical. Verses 23 through 26 are, are really what I'm arguing like practical application relevant to that day of what Jesus was trying to teach. And so I'm going to encourage you this week in your community groups or even with your household, take some time to discuss verses 23 through 20, 26 in context. You might even come up with some present day examples that help us make sense of that which Jesus is calling us to. But let's be reminded, church, anger is not a fruit of the Spirit. And the way we speak about people matters. Briefly, my husband loves this example. But I happen to think that driving is the greatest practice of loving your enemy. How many of y'all try to wield some anger when you're driving? Let's see what, what Jesus has to say as we continue on. We're going to read verses, we're going to go back to verses 43 through 48 now. Hear the word of our Lord. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you're only kind to your friends, 
How are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. The word of the Lord. So next in your notes, another big theme from this chunk is this. Jesus called us to love your enemies, the everyday and the faraway. We're going to unpack that. But Jesus' call is to love your enemies, the everyday and the faraway. If you look back at those verses, Jesus is being a little funny here. Jesus is funny. So if you notice in your Bible, he says... In verse 43, you have heard the law says, love your enemy, and that part's in quotes. And then he says, and, or love your neighbor is in quotes, and then it says, and hate your enemy. And hate your enemy is not in quotes, because God didn't say that. We said that. And Jesus knows that, so he's kind of poking fun at him. And then he goes on to say, but I say, love your enemy. And you see what happened there is one part of that is law. Love your neighbor. That is the law. The second part is this human addition. It's human inference or assumption Jesus knew the people were making because he knew their hearts. And you know, it's this crazy thing. We do this a lot. Jesus says something, and then we fill in the blanks with whatever we think should go with it. Let's look at some examples. This is a doodle from the book, What If Jesus Was Serious? So what God said, love your neighbor. What people hear, hate your enemy. That's what I heard. What about you? No? Okay. What God said, God created the heavens and the earth. What people hear, science is a lie. You're not laughing, but it's true. We do this. (laughs) What God said, do not oppress an immigrant. I'm not even going to read that out loud. Y'all read it. God is love. God agrees with me and I don't have to change. You see, our brains do this. We fill in the blanks based on kind of cultural influence and what feels good, and we try to make sense of these very radical calls that God makes on us, and it really doesn't go well for us. You see, God says one thing, and then often our sinful human minds make assumptions that completely contort the whole purpose. Jesus said, love your enemies, period. And that's what he meant. Some translations in these verses say, bless those who curse you. And this is really helpful because it reminds us that love, this love that God's calling us to, Jesus says, love your enemies, this love implies action. Bless those who curse you. It implies action. And so Jesus is really teaching us that if we love someone, if we love someone, it drives us to make decisions that are good for them. Do the mental math, even your enemies. Chew on that for a second. That means that even 
the people who feel like our enemies. We make decisions that benefit them. That is what Jesus meant when he said, love your enemies. That's hard. So I said in our notes, love your enemies, the everyday and the far away. What I mean by that is that the, the everyday enemies are, are the ones we rub shoulders with. Let's be real. Let me just list some. You might relate to these. Some days your spouse feels like your enemy. What about a mouthy teenager? None of these. They're perfect. What about the person who cuts you off in traffic? Or the person at the grocery store that's walking too slow, you know? So, What about the transgender person that you see? Now your kid is asking questions. What about the atheist that is just really against what you believe? Those everyday people that we rub shoulders with over and over again, God calls us to a love for them that implies action, making decisions that are for their good. And then the far away people, sometimes this is even easier to, to justify, but these are those people who we don't actually know, but we're tempted to make judgments about or ignore altogether. <clears throat> Politicians, we just write them off, right? What about turning a blind eye to other countries who have significantly less than us? What about the homeless population that we just make assumptions about for why they're in their situation? Or the addicts that culturally are very far away. We don't understand because we don't have to rub shoulders. We, it's easy to just dismiss. Here's the crazy thing, church. Jesus said that when we love our enemies and when we pray for them, we are acting as true children of our Father God. Wow, true children. And I have to ask, church, because this hit me. What about if we flip that? What does it mean when we don't love and we don't pray for our enemies? Because if I flip that, means I'm not living as a true child of God. That's not something I'm okay with. Verse 45 even reminds us that Jesus said this nutty thing, that God's blessings come to both the good and the evil, that his rains of blessing pour down on, on the just and the unjust. And we follow his example. Man, that's tough. Grace umbrella. Go with me. Let's read verses 46 through 47 briefly again. Jesus said, if you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. 
If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. You know, Jesus, again, let's go back to what we talked about in day one in this series. Jesus is teaching a different ethic, a new way of doing things. He's saying the world does it this way, but we do it the other way. And if we go to verses 38, I think he gives us the example of that. In verse 38, he said, You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for the tooth. That's the way of the world. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you're sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask. And don't turn away from those who want to borrow. I think those are examples of Jesus calling us to apply that which he's teaching. So I think it boils down to this. If we truly love our enemies, revenge is not an option. Grace is our only option. If we truly love our inner enemies... And we know anger is not a fruit of the Spirit, then revenge is off the table for us. Grace is the way forward. The things Jesus says we are to do in this section of Scripture that we just read seem like nonsense to a sensible person. Turn the other cheek, walk the second mile. Give more than what is demanded. Any sensible person would be like, that's psychotic, right? And you know, the truth is, humans have tried to reinterpret what Jesus meant and like do theological gymnastics to like try to understand what Jesus meant. And Jesus is like, dudes, I just meant what I said. No matter how counterintuitive it feels, our call to self-sacrificial love has to override and restrain our instinct for retaliation, especially in a society that like makes TikToks out of retaliation and then it goes viral on the internet and everybody laughs at it. That's not the way of King Jesus that we follow. So again, Jesus, in all of his teaching, is taking that which people know and trying to drive it down into their hearts. And so if we were to summarize this concept of love for enemies, this is what I think we have to walk away with. Love for enemies is a heart shift that informs our actions. Sorry about the typo. Love for enemies is a heart shift that informs our actions. The love that God called us to goes far beyond an emotion. It activates our will. To love our enemy means we actively seek their best interest. Woo! Boy, howdy. Anybody else feeling a little convicted? 
But Jesus, thankfully, is the one who supplies all the grace we need to stay on the messy journey trying to figure this out. To be reminded that anger is not a fruit of the Spirit. (laughs) That the call to love our enemies means that we act on behalf of the good of those who we perceive are our enemies. And the way that we speak about people matters in the middle of it all. I'm going to invite the worship and prayer team to worship team. Working on getting a prayer team at the altars. Sorry, that slipped out. Worship team to come get ready to lead us in a time of reflection. I just want to make space for this really strong word. Make space for the spirit of the living God to work on all of us. And maybe we start here. Maybe we spend some time praying for our enemies. Maybe it's an everyday someone that feels hard right now. Maybe it's somebody far away. You recognize that your heart towards whoever the faraway enemy is doesn't honor God. Maybe today you recognize that anger has a stronghold in your life. And unless you can wield it perfectly, That anger needs to be left to our perfectly just God. And we need the Spirit of God to help pluck it from our lives. Maybe today we have to ask, are, are we being discipled by people and things that stoke our anger? And we need to turn away from that and towards the things that stoke the things of God. Because if we follow the way of Jesus, this love for for the enemy that he has called us to demands action. You know, the beautiful thing is Jesus gave us the best example of this. Jesus was literally crucified by the enemies, by the politicians, the ones who had power. And so when Jesus says, don't retaliate, boy, he showed us what it looks like not to retaliate. As he allowed the political structure of the day to literally crucify him. That's the king that we follow. And somehow in that upside down way of God's kingdom, that wins. It's the mystery of following King Jesus. That in our humility, in our lowness, we win. And so today, church, I think it's so appropriate that we come to the table of grace together. As I'm convicted, as I desperately want to follow the way of Jesus, we're reminded that Christ's body was broken for us, that we might be made whole.
His blood was poured out for us that our sins might be washed clean. And today, in our anger, in our brokenness, we all come to this same table of grace to take from the same body and the same blood and be transformed by his grace once again. And it is that grace that propels us on in our journey of faith.